Welcome to Advancing PM&R, a podcast from the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, hosted by Dr. Michelle Gittler and Dr. Prakash Jayabalan. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on our podcast, Advancing PM&R. I'm Dr. Prakash Jayabalan, and I'm joined by my co-host today, Dr. Michelle Gittler. Hi, Michelle. How has your week been? Prakash, I was hoping you would ask, because... We went live with Epic finally. So many of you don't even know what the old-fashioned Meditech was. Ours was held together with duct tape, you know, and some cardboard. (laughs) But yeah, we went live. So it's so exciting to have a real EMR. But that may be why I look a little more gray than I did last week. (laughs) Anyway... Thrilled to be back with you, and I'm really excited to interview Dr. Gerson. Absolutely. So I'm very excited to have our guest today, Dr. Matthew Gerson, our first West Coast participant in our podcast. Just to give some background on Dr. Gerson, he's an alum of the University of Washington Residency Program, a sports medicine fellow, graduated sports medicine at the University of Washington in 2014. He was a physiatrist at the Virginia Mason Medical Center for two and a half years, and then a private practitioner in a PM&R group called the Seattle Spine and Sports Medicine Group for six years. And within the last year, or just over a couple of months, really, Dr. Grierson took the plunge and started his own practice called Sound Spine and Joint Physicians at uh, in Seattle. And we're very excited to have him join us today. Also, I have to say, on top of him having his own private practice, we're also very excited to have him because he is also the AAPMNR chair to the Reimbursement and Policy Review Committee called the RUC. He's represented to the AMA RVS Update Committee and the chair of the Relativity Assessment Workgroup, a member of the Quality Practice Policy and Research Committee, QPPR, of the AAPMNR. Don't quite know how he does all of these things, but we're going to find out today. Matthew, so excited to have you join us. And I want to dive right in and just ask you, making that transition to starting your own private practice, what made you do it? How is it going? And what keeps you awake at night? Well, you asked me what keeps me awake at night, and I guess that assumes I get any sleep. And so <laughs> I think having just started my own practice in July, so it's almost been three months now. It's been a roller coaster. I have all of the emotions, excitement, fear, terror, <laughs> purulation. It's sort of given me an opportunity to remind myself why I went into medicine and really dive in deep in terms of what are my values? What do I want to get out of being a physician and really have that freedom to be able to explore that a bit? So it's been a bit of a roller coaster because right now the buck stops with me. I I'm used to being part of a team. I'm used to having every all of these systems set up, and I'm used to being very judgy about all of those systems. <laughs> and now it's like, well, okay, I mean, you don't have anyone to complain to but yourself if something goes wrong. And so I am looking forward to building up my team and continuing to move forward on this adventure of starting my own practice. Matthew, what enabled you to pull the trigger? I mean, I'm scared thinking about it. And it's uh, incredibly brave, but I'm also very jealous of the way your voice just exuded like love and warmth about what you do when you said and get back to really practicing medicine. What made you decide to do it now? 
Well, honestly, it's been a dream of mine to have my own practice for many years. I think because I have such a niche interest, performing arts medicine, dance medicine, it's really hard, I think, if you're in a bigger group or a bigger hospital system to really pave a pathway forward because you're trying to build your reputation you know, to support the hospital, to support the clinic. And so for the longest time, I've just realized in order for me to really do what I want to be able to do, I've got to go out to my own. And so then we had COVID happen and everything oh. sort of shut down. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and it really felt like, well, I just got to survive day by day, get through to the next day, get to the next month. And as things started to stabilize and feel a bit, a little less stress from all of that, there was a perfect opportunity that opened up where there was this space where a couple of physicians were going into this space and there was a physical therapy group. There's some psychologists in the area. It was kind of a perfect opportunity. I couldn't say no, especially because actually the view here and listeners at home aren't going to be able to see, but my view here from my new office is just amazing. And it was like just one of those things where I've been planning it, just waiting in the, in, in the shadows for many, many years. And suddenly the perfect opportunity opened up and I leapt for it. And then, you know, you've been in private practice for almost 10 years now. And in that time, I'm sure a lot of trainees, they have misconceptions about private practice, etc. What are some of the concerns that you've heard? But what would you also say to allay some of those fears that some of our trainees or people think about going to private practice might have? I mean, that's such a great question. We do still get trainees from the University of Washington, the residents, and we get medical students who rotate here as well. And (laughs) it was my first week in practice and one of the residents, and I don't know that they were trying to be offensive, but I think you're right. It is sort of built into them that they have a lot of fear and they're just like, aren't you terrified? Like, aren't you scared? Like, aren't you worried about all the paperwork you're going to have to do, all of the red tape? And I'd be like, well, yes, I'm scared of that and about 600 other things. But also, I get to sort of build my own practice. I get to be able to dictate what types of patients I see and how much time I give to them and what types of procedures. And really, it gives me an opportunity to participate more at the national level with my different committees that I'm interested in and different research opportunities. We have a free clinic that we run for dancers who don't have health insurance and so right now, I don't have someone beating down my shoulders being like, hey, you need to get your RVUs up. RVUs are those ways that we sort of decide how much value of work that you've been doing throughout the day. Or what are your collections? Well, yes, all of those things are very important. But for me personally, that's not what drives me in medicine. And so I really have an opportunity. Yes, I've got to keep the lights on. Yes, I've got to pay my staff. And it has to make sense business-wise. But I also have some of that freedom now that um, if I was in a more structured situation and I've been in that structured situation, it just wasn't realistic. I mean, one of my old employers was like, are you allergic to money? I mean, he's (laughs) like, you do so much, you know, for other people. And yes, that is a big piece of what drives us moving forward. But at the end of the day, so many of us are leaving the profession, leaving the practice of medicine, sort of wondering why we went into being a physiatrist. And so if that's sort of always the one thing that's sort of in the back of your mind, is this activity making me money? Well, you're never going to get to that thing that connects you to, you know, why you went into being a physician, why you're a physiatrist. There is absolutely nothing in our training as medical students or residents 
in my opinion, that really prepares us for understanding how to plan for something like this. What did you do? How were you mentored? Um, maybe you could share a mistake or two so we don't all make those mistakes. Yeah. I think my first mistake was scheduling myself in clinic all day, every day. <laughs> As the solo practitioner, I probably, and I have had to do that, sort of set some time aside in my schedule to, to really give myself time to catch up in everything that you have to do paperwork-wise, pre-authorizations. There is a lot that goes on behind the scenes. And if you're in a small medical practice where you're trying to keep overhead low and you don't have a lot of staff, then th- these are things you have to think about. But I, I didn't expect to get as busy as quickly as I did. And so I think I probably would have brought more staff on a lot earlier in the process. And I mean, it's a good problem to have to be too busy in our profession, but also I I probably would have had more confidence in myself that we as physicians were taught that we don't have value (laughs) somewhere along the way. It's sort of beaten into us as medical students. And I think we all have a lot more value than we really have. So where I sought out mentorship is actually I've had one friend who, thank God, he actually went out on his own not too far from here and opened up his own practice about a year ago. And so every couple of weeks, I'm like testing him, like, what did you do at this stage? What did you do at this stage? What did you do at this stage? And even people I've worked with on committees at the AAPMNR, I've picked their brains because some of them have been in private practice for a while, but everything's changing. And there are forums actually within the AAPMNR where you can ask people questions and you go to a national conference and you start picking people's brains that way. It's not one of those things where I have one mentor who's like, you know, helping me along throughout the the process. I have about a thousand different mentors (laughs) who help me out. And the American Medical Association, they have a whole private practice. It's a handbook, actually, that goes through and it it gives you some great information in terms of how to set things up from the start. So anyways, I'm very involved locally within my state and county medical societies, and they've been great resources as well. So and then just even going out on my own, you know, there were a couple of us that went out and ventured our own and started our own practices at the same time. So that's been sort of interesting bouncing ideas off of what works for one person doesn't work for another. So I don't think there's not a one right way to do any of this. And so that's what I've learned. I'd love for you to comment just a moment. We often hear that people in private practice may not have the flexibility to participate or do volunteer work the way people perhaps in an academic practice might. And yet you seem to thumb your nose at that old wives' tale, new wives' tale. I don't know. Maybe could you comment on that a moment? Because we hear that over and over again. Well, it's hard in private practice. You hear the phrase, you eat what you kill. And so if, if you're not this isn't the right saying, but if you're not killing anything, you're not eating anything. (laughs) And so I think it's actually more intentional. So if you're going to volunteer for something, you make the decision, hey, this is a day I'm not going to bring in revenue. And if I'm not bringing in revenue, you know that I'm going to make less money. (laughs) And so for people in private practice, it's different because there is certainly an incentive to be in work every day, all day, bringing in that revenue and not doing these volunteer opportunities. But I'll tell you what, you do that for enough years and you'll just sort of work yourself into the ground and you lose that passion. You lose that thing that sort of anchors you to medicine. But even in a big hospital system, you have to sort of prove your worth. You have to show how many RVUs you've made throughout the year. And if you're not Mm -hmm. making up to that level, then you've got to 
you know, you're having to answer to them and you get asked if you're allergic to money, you know, those sorts of things. <laughs> but it is hard. I think it's hard for everybody to do this volunteer work. But one thing that sort of drives me as being in private practice is I do see the money. I do see the finances a bit more. So I know the importances, mm-hmm. the importance of fighting the fight with the insurance companies, you know, what can we do to get this code so it's optimally valued for what we do as physiatrists? Whereas if you're in a big academic situation, sometimes you're sheltered from yeah. some of that. And you just don't understand the importance of being involved. Well, let me say on behalf of all of us who are physiatrists and particularly the academy, thank you so much for your ongoing involvement with the AMA RUT committee. And I'm going to segue into asking you to talk a little bit about it. And first, I do want to make sure people know that this has not always been something where we've had a grown-up seat at the table, if you will. I think it was just in 2019 that our specialty was actually invited to come to the grown-up table. So I thought maybe you could explain what RUC stands for and tell us a little bit about why it's important that you're going to this meeting next week and overall what the committee does and what we should maybe look forward to. So, yeah, that first question, what does the RUC stand for? It's like an acronym of acronyms. And so it's kind of like the epitome of like, this is actually probably the nerdiest thing any of us will ever know anything about. <laughs> but it actually is very important where decisions that are seemingly small at the RUC have a big impact in terms of the pockets books for every physician and physiatrist out there. So the acronym stands for RBRVS Update Committee. So Resource-Based Relative Value Scale Update Committee. And so the relative value scale, it's measured in relative value units. And so those are the units for all of the work that we do. It basically accounts for all of the time, the intensity of the work we do, the practice expense, the liability costs of everything we do. Everything is really scrutinized at a very high level. And for the longest time, we had no physiatrist contributing actively to those votes at the table. Of course, since everything started, we've had physiatry taking our issues forward, advocating on behalf of the specialty, but we've never actually had someone with a seat at the table making the actual decisions. And it's very interesting because at the RUC, we're not allowed to actually comment at the table on things relevant to our specialty. We, we rely on our specialty advisors to come and do that advocacy work. But it's very interesting how things come up. And so much of the work that we do involves everybody as part of the rehab team, physical therapists, speech language pathologists. And as physiatrists, we have a language and we have a special relationship with all of those allied health professionals that actually it helps bring an understanding in terms of the discussions at the rock. I remember there was one conversation about they were valuing a physical therapy service. They didn't even realize that aquatic therapy was an actual thing. <laughs> and I'm like, of course <laughs> it's a thing. And as we're talking about how to value a service and doing an evaluation, I remember thinking a lot of 
the work that goes into it has to do with evaluating someone's function. And that's a lot different than just sort of doing a regular physical examination. And so bringing those conversations to the table in terms of, you know, it's a post-operative visit and what are the orthopedic surgeons really doing in these situations and how do we all work as a team and get the appropriate value for the appropriate work that we all do. It's been really interesting and quite valuable. I think I'm hoping that others around the table also find that value. And I think they do because our conversations are a little bit more nuanced since we've had that seat at the table over the last five years. And let me ask, it's a relative value scale, but relative to what? You know, I think all of us want to know, like, what is one? Because I still don't understand. The number seems so arbitrary to me. Right. Do you guys understand relative to what? Well, it's relative to every other code that you know that you're familiar with. And so when a survey goes out, you're going to be asked to sort of look at that code and compare it to other codes that you have knowledge about and start to think, well, which one's more technical? Which one do I start sweating more while I'm doing it? Which one am I worried that I'm going to miss an important diagnosis? Which one do I have to do a much more detailed examination? Or is it the conversation itself is really intense and there's a lot of emotions involved and a risk of something from a mental health standpoint going on? And so Honestly, that's a great question. What is the value of one? I should go through, there's a database and go through and see, you know, there's probably like 10 codes with an exact value of one. And that would be really interesting to sort of see exactly what, what that is. But essentially, the scale was developed by some very smart people at Harvard many years ago <laughs> in the late 80s, early 90s. And lots of math was involved and out pops these numbers. And since then, basically, it's a game where if a new code comes in, we compare it, we look at the time, the intensity of the work, and all of the practice expense materials that go into all of those codes, you know, to come with ones down the road. And of course, we're always advocating for higher values for the codes that we're involved in. And it's such a sort of perfect storm, because the way the government has set it up is that if codes for one service go up for one specialty, actually, then all the value that people get for the other codes out there go down because there's just one big pie out there. So if you take a bigger piece of the pie because of your new code, suddenly everybody else is taking a lower piece. So there is quite a lot of incentive to scrutinize all of the work. And that tends to sort of over time, a lot of the values for the codes do tend to go down over time as you know many of them end up being misvalued and that gets adjusted over time through there's many screens out there. Wow. <laughs> well, I'm thrilled that you're there advocating for us because right now all I'm thinking is, all right, so that means that the RVUs for new practitioners should be higher for the same thing that someone with more experience does because it's easier for me to do it than someone who's newly minted. But that's not how it works. <laughs> no, it's not. And the way they think about it is what is typical. You may have a service where you've got a very difficult patient where you spend twice the amount of time in. Well, they balance it out because there's a lot of other patients who come in and maybe only spend half the time that they've estimated. And some of that goes into like the experience of one specialty performing a code compared to another specialty 
performing a code. The way an orthopedic surgeon might think about a knee injection is very different than how a physiatrist might think about a knee injection. And what you talked about was practitioner variability, but there's also variability in between the specialties. And it's interesting to see how one code might be billed most predominantly by one specialty, then over time it starts to shift as practice patterns change. And actually, when that happens, we have to resurvey the code because it's actually now a completely different service now that it's typically performed by another specialty. So it's very interesting how complex all of this can get over time. Matthew, thank you so much. I've learned so much from just you explaining that. I think it's really important, particularly for our junior physicians to understand a lot of this and residents as they go into practice. Thank you. I echo everything that Michelle said and all that you've done for advocating for our practitioners and our specialty at the RUC, because it's pivotal. Towards the end of this podcast, we want to get to know Dr. Grierson, the person at this point. And I have a question. I know Michelle also has a question for you, but mine is more just, you know, we've said on, on some committees together, and I know you're a performer and your love of dance is not just other people dancing, it's also yourself. So I'd love to just to know why you're so interested in dance. How did you start that? And, and why is it such a passion of yours, performing arts medicine? Yeah, you know, I didn't start dancing till college, but I majored in dance as an undergraduate. And part of it was so much about dance, you know, it's all about movement and kind of living in your body. And it's such a different way of experiencing the world and thinking about how you relate to others. And I discovered dance at a part of my life where I was discovering a lot about my own identity. So I see the two are very connected. And I had an opportunity having gone into college wanting to be a doctor forever. And I just kind of discovered this idea of like movement, which I had always been scared of. I'd always been what I felt was like divorced from my body. Like I just didn't feel comfortable in my body and dance. It felt like gave me my body back. And so I took one class, which led to two classes, which led to me minoring, which then led to me ended up majoring. So I took a, like a four-year diversion. <laughs> so it took me seven years actually to graduate with two degrees, one in biology and one in dance. But it's really interesting because I think it's my connection to dance and my connection to movement, which actually made me want to become a physiatrist because so much of it is about movement and function. And how do people engage in the world? What is the activities that you're able to do throughout the day? And how does movement relate to all of that? Well, 100% the two are entwined. And so that's kind of what attracted me to this specialty and why I love it so much. And right now, it's why I love caring for dancers and performing artists, but at all levels of age, ability, and function. And I think that's another thing that being a physiatrist has sort of given me is appreciating the full spectrum that there really is out there. So Matthew, when you are not dancing and you're not going to the AMA representing physiatrists at Ruck and you're not taking care of your solo practice, where would you take us if we came to visit you in Seattle? Well, I do love the Ballard Locks. That's one of the fun places where you can see where the, the water levels change as people are going in and out of the Puget Sound and it's actually just around the corner from a brand new cafe that my partner, my life partner, is opening up in three months. So if you want a recipe for how to like insert some spice into your life, in one summer, open up a brand new cafe and a brand new medical practice. <laughs> that's, that's fun for the whole family right there. So, yeah. Do you guys like serve Tums at every meal? <laughs> basically, basically. 
But the cafe, it's like a grab and go and you get a picnic basket. And the reason it's relevant is there are just so many parks here around the city that you can just go and just have a day at the park. And it's interesting because some of the dance companies that I take care of, they do these little pop-ups at all the different parks around town. And you'll be sitting there and then there's a dance company that just comes and has a performance right there in front of you. So it's interesting. Seattle, I love because there is so much community. And no matter what your interest is, you, you can always find ways to connect with others. So that's what I love about Seattle. It sounds wonderful. And we will absolutely take you up on getting a picnic from the Grab and Go Cafe. <laughs> um, Matthew, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thank you to all of our listeners. Looking forward, obviously, to future conversations and we are going to circle back because we know you're going to your meeting next week, but boy, we'd love to know what happened later. So thank you again so very much for taking the time, especially since you just opened your private thank practice. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you so much for having me. This was a great conversation. Thank you.